This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 167. We have the wonderful Steve Possel on the show today, uh, and I am really, really fascinated by his story. He is an incredible man who's done incredible things to try and raise more awareness for climate change and He's done it in a little bit of an unconventional way. He's a 66-year-old civil and water engineer, adventurer and grandfather. He's a fellow of the Engineers of Australia. He's been a climate activist for well over a decade using extremely long kayaking journeys to promote awareness and education. He's currently the chair of the Sustainable Engineering Society and he's working with Engineers Australia to come to grips with the urgency for climate change, uh, climate action. Old Yeller is the name of his wheeled kayak, has served him faithfully for 12 years and get this, over 12,000 kilometres with almost 2,000 of that dragging it over land. Of course, it took an engineer to create such a thing that he could do that with. Um, but using his engineering knowledge, his goal has been to alert people to the real risks that climate change presents. And Steve does a brilliant job of actually presenting the risk analysis on climate change and how crazy it is that we still have governments not acting. So he's the author of Crimea River and Tough is Not Enough, which is his second and latest book. He lives in Ballina and I'm really, really overjoyed to bring you uh, um, an activist hero to the show because I think hearing these stories is so inspiring and it inspires us to level up, step up and see what we might do better and more uh, efficiently to create change in our own circles. I always say, you know, it, activism and uh, acting doesn't need to look the same on one issue for everybody and it really is just about us all doing something extra uh, from wherever we are to whatever that next step is. Uh, I even share that uh, I personally find it really hard. The, uh, the idea of actually lying down in a street and getting arrested really scares me. It's completely fear-based. Um, but it doesn't mean I don't have great respect for people who put themselves on the line like that. It also doesn't make me an ineffective person when it comes to climate action because I'm not doing it that way. We all have a way of showing up and we have to show up in a way that is uh, true to us. And, you know, when fear is involved in a way that we still feel like we can actually do something. And, uh, and I try to do something every day. I try to inspire our community, however possible through the show, through the courses, through chats online. Uh, you know, it's going to look different for everybody. Rob Greenfield, who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago for him, it looks like it's showing that you can live in a city and forage or grow a hundred percent of your food for a whole year. So everybody's doing this in their own sweet way. And I applaud us all 
for taking action however it looks for us. It's a really fantastic candid chat today. Steve shares a lot of the ups and downs and behind the scenes aspects of being an engineer and largely disagreeing with a lot of the stuff that has been done uh, around him and uh, how wonderful that we have incredible uh, professional experts such as Steve to show a different way Um, and I know you're going to love that chat. So we'll kick off with that chat in just a little second. I want to welcome everybody who has joined the Lotox Club community recently. Thank you for joining us there. Joining the Lotox Club for $4 a month US, which is essentially just like swapping out one bought coffee a month, uh, means that you get to bring your Lotox life to life with beautiful conversations with fellow Lotox community members from all around the world. And you get 20% off all of our e-courses to support you with your goals. You have the fabulous Practitioner Tuesday thread that so many of you make the most of in uh, allowing Steph, the naturopath on our team, to uh, workshop any, um, you know, challenges that you might be having right now, wanting to see which way to go, wanting to know at what point can you experiment yourself and what time would be a good time to reach out to a local practitioner. She helps with all sorts of uh, advice and it's fantastic to be able to offer you guys that service. Uh, and we then also, of course, have the odd challenge that pops up. Uh, I do live Q&A calls uh, to just kind of throw around whatever ideas are going on for people and questions that you might have. It's a beautiful place to be. So please come and join us there. Your support for the work we do to support your goals is greatly appreciated. And the way that you join is through Patreon. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you jump onto the Patreon website, search Lotox Life pledge and you are in. So we have just a little bit of time left for you to make the most of this month's show supporter, Waters Co., who are, in my opinion, the best water filters out there. Uh, And Waters Co. is all about providing you with incredible filtration at various shapes, sizes. There's something for everyone's budget um, because they have benchtop jug and portable filters And they're just cents in the dollar per litre of water filtered compared with uh, the microplastics generated from single-use plastic bottles, excuse me. Uh, So um, I'm a huge advocate for the wonderful uh, range of, of filters that they have. Our family loves and uses them. And did you know, actually, this is interesting, that bottled water consumption is still on the rise. How is that even possible, people? Corporations are making billions on a natural resource that should be free to all. And we've seen some horror stories of corporate buying of water that leaves local farmers destitute, that leads to uh, horrific levels of draining of rivers. Uh, and uh, other water resources, it is heartbreaking to know that water bottle consumption is still on the rise. So let's make this a dirty habit now. Let's call it out. Let's tell the school, no more water bottles in the canteen for the tuck shop. Let's, wherever you see them and you think, you know what, I've actually, I'm going to think about an idea that I can share with these people as to why we should replace the water bottles with a water filter option for people to have 
uh, water filter. You know, like if you're a tennis club, for example, like why not charge everybody an extra 50 cents for court hire and make water free for all and provide a water filter. Actually, I'm going to suggest that to my tennis club. There you go. Because uh, I'm a huge tennis fan. I absolutely adore my local tennis club. Shout out to White City uh, in Sydney. But um, yeah, I think if we all just make more suggestions when we see bottled water being drunk, bottled water being sold, how can we place a stronger importance on education and providing free water, uh, free high quality water through filtration systems such as Waterco, Watersco to make uh, it accessible and to make it happen more widely so that we can reverse this crazy rise uh, in water bottle purchasing. It's crazy. I just When I heard that recently, I was just shocked as I know many of you will be. So you have 10% off the Waters Co. range for another few days. Your code is LOWTOXTXWC23. Uh, and if that's too much of a, a mouthful to remember, head to the show notes. You've got all the details there. Uh, and uh, enjoy their wonderful, wonderful range. I love the mini Waterman. We have that for travel. Uh, that if you want an entry-level bench top, you've got the wonderful one-liter Ace Bio Jug. Uh, but then if you want, you know, if you cook stocks and you regularly soak in grains and, and beans and things like that, and you want a bigger solution, the Bio 500 or the Bio 1000, which is the one we have, uh, are excellent. So enjoy those fabulous water filters and uh, enjoy this exciting uh, show. Uh, ironically, we talk a lot about water a lot on this show. So there you go, a bit of a link with the wonderful activist and engineer, Steve Posselt. Hey, Steve, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Alex. I hope you're well. I am very well, thank you, on this beautiful burning planet that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and, of course, I'm only laughing because the alternative is crying on my show and that's not really an option right now. So <laughs> I'm... <laughs> no, we don't want that. I am super excited to share your story with our listeners um, because not only on a personal and professional uh, level is it really, really inspiring, but also in terms of the big picture thinking you can help us do to move forward, which is something that often a lot of us get frustrated about feeling like we can't do. So I want to start by asking you, I know engineering has been your life's career in your professional work. Were you always drawn to that as a boy? When did that become interesting to you? No, I wasn't drawn to that, although I've always been inquisitive. Yeah. Um, look, I could have gone a lot of different ways. I thought I might like to be a meteorologist. But uh, when I was um, in high school, on the Clarence River where I lived, they decided to drain the floodplain to assist with floods and mm -hmm. to provide more land for, for, for cattle. And I looked at all those drains and I thought, this is fantastic. There's bulldozers and there's graders and there's excavators and drag lines and I loved it. So when it came time to decide what to build again at school, I looked back and I thought, geez, that'd be good, all this big stuff. And I really like water. I'd like to know how water works. I didn't realise how hard the hydraulics equations would be. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I did engineering with Sydney Water and I, 
I just loved the stuff that I learned. I didn't like how hard we had to, to work, but I really felt that that was my niche. And I, I've been in that space ever since, which is 45 years. Wow, amazing. And uh, at, at what point did you start to think about the effect of some of the things you were perhaps involved in designing or working towards planning uh, and our planet and access to water and maybe changing your perspective on some of the technical stuff you'd learned at uni? One of the, one of the problems with blokes is <laughs> they... <laughs> just one of them. I didn't say it, you did. <laughs> um, they see themselves as the breadwinner, the carer, the big man who goes out and looks after the family. And I felt that was my job, to do my best. Uh, I was busy making money. I um, really thought it'd be good if I could get down to 60 hours a week. But I never could get there. I just work, 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 work. And um, when I was 54, I sold my business and decided to take off on a, on a trip. Mm-hmm. And it was about then that um, I started to see life a little bit differently. When all the pressure of surviving was off, and I could sit in my kayak for a few months at a time, and I could contemplate a few things. And that's, that's when people started calling me an environmentalist. And I got upset at that. I'm the bloody environmentalist, I said. And then other people said, yes, you are, wear that with pride. But I still had a lot of trouble with that because I felt like we were just destroying a planet and people couldn't see it. And And so what did you have an issue with in terms of the term environmentalism? Is it what it conjured for you in the past of your life? Well, yeah, I just thought... Like I'm not that kind of a person? I'm not worthy to be an environmentalist, I thought. You know, I'd go and and chuck some lino on the fire or something or put some fibro on there to watch it crack. You know, that that was, it was, you know, I I just didn't see myself as an environmentalist. Gotcha. And so obviously your friends did and asked you to wear it with pride. So what happened next? Um, I wrote my book, which was supposed to be about climate change but when i got to the top of the mountain at uh, toowoomba that's when i ran out of people to talk about climate change to they nearly all deniers all the way down the river and i was just watching what was going on with the river system and there was a bloke at clifton which is near toowoomba who said to me you see that creek down there He said, when I was middle-aged, now he was about 75, so I I don't know what that means in how long ago, but he said, I could look up up there to to Warwick and we get a storm up there and two and a half days later, the creek had come up. And now it's nine hours. So I thought, wow. And then I looked everywhere. I was just looking at what was happening with water. And we've speeded everything up. We've turned the whole country into a drain. So I tried to explain to people what a river is. Yeah. It's not magic 
that river's flow when it's not raining. Drains don't, but if we keep going, the rivers won't flow except when it rains. Mm. That means you don't have an ecosystem. It means that the land is dry. It means that your crops won't work properly. So I started to think that we've got it all wrong with how we deal with water. Everyone you talk to out west will talk to you about gigalitres or megalitres or whatever. They talk about the quantity of the water. And that's water sitting in what I would call an evaporation pond because they'll lose over a metre and a half of that every year. Wow. So you're talking about dams? Dams. Yeah. Yeah. When really we should be talking about soil moisture content. Mm. And you can do that with satellite imagery now. And we're drying out. And, and so what's our answer? Have a look at the number of dams they're putting in around Stanthorpe now. You know, put in more dams, more dams, more dams. Yeah, so, I, just, I was literally reading an article today that was talking about the dam project that was around the corner um, somewhere. So it's obviously a huge... Do you think it's a huge part of the discourse? Because it sounds like to an undereducated or... Um, you know, headline reading person to get their education. Oh, they're building jazz. That means there's going to be more water, so we're good. The, the government's good. That's the logic to it. But I would love those guys to just go and sit in a kayak for three months with me and have a look at what's going on. Mm. Interestingly, I was talking to the US Army Corps of Engineers when I was paddling up the Mississippi. And it was a great organisation to me. It was like stepping back in time. And I asked the guy that I was talking to, who was too I see, I said, who runs this place? And he said, oh, it's an engineer. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a hydrologist, but somebody who knows engineering and, and water. I thought, oh, wow, that's a novel idea. Eh? We decided in Australia years ago that lawyers and, and um, doctors or bankers or whatever were better at running engineering organisations. So I think it's a, it's a good organisation. It understands the engineering. It started to get into environmental aspects now, but I could have a conversation with this guy about engineering terms. And he said, Steve, it's not only Australia that we're turning the place into drones. He said, 3,000 miles from here, way up in the headwaters, he said, the farmers tile their fields to get the water off and he to said, get the water off where, sorry? You just cut out. To get the water off their fields quicker. Oh, okay, yep. So that means that the water comes down in bigger lumps and the Mississippi now goes up and down 40 feet, 12 metres, without them calling it a flood. They've learnt to deal with that. Wow. But the problem is, is when it comes down in these big lumps, there's nothing left to keep the flow. So they've got these big walls that go out into the middle of the river that, uh, well, those things have caused me a lot of trouble, but that's to, to train the river so there's enough flow to get the barges up the river during the dry times because that's what the US Army Corps of Engineers' job is. Wow. And so... In, in what you're talking about here, are you talking about the uh, climate changing uh, rain bomb syndrome that we've got happening where it's raining less, but when it's raining, it's raining much, much more heavily? And well, 
our soils, our yeah. soils can't, and, and the way we've set the structure of flow of water up can't grab onto and draw down enough water to actually recover from dry times. Is that one of the issues that you're talking about there? You put two issues together. Okay. And, and it's very true, yes. Um, but even if we didn't have climate change, we've pretty much stuffed it up. So, so we feel was, like we've outsmarted nature on how water should flow and we've actually got it dead wrong. Yeah, I don't know whether we feel like we've outsmarted <laughs> nature, but yes, if you have a look at the, um, <laughs> at the Grantham floods and the uh, Toowoomba mm-hmm. inland tsunami, yep. uh, was that climate change? Probably because you referred to more intense events. Mm-hmm. So it was a more intense event. But we'd concentrated the flow into these, these narrow spaces. Toowoomba means swamp, so it was, it was flat. And yeah. so all that water would have made, I don't know, a few millimetres, I don't know, inches difference across a big swamp. You channel it into two streets and it comes down in a, like a tidal wave. Mm-hmm. And then it, further downstream at Grantham, the same issue was. It's the, there are hydraulic equations where you can work out the flow and the, and the velocity and the power. The power is increased remarkably when you reduce what we call the time of concentration, which is how long it takes a drop of water to get from the top of the catchment to the bottom. Okay. So those floods were no accident. Sure, climate change had a hand in it, but um, mankind had a lot bigger hand. Mm, interesting. And so after building dams, <laughs> working on dams, and then realising, hold on, that wasn't such a great idea, and starting to actually get comfortable with becoming an environmental activist, because essentially if you're working to create a better environment, and you can see it's not happening around you, you have to become active, therefore activist. What were some of the pushbacks from colleagues, uh, government in those early days? Because you had a, a quite a senior gig. Um, let's just go back to uh, my dams thing. Yeah. I didn't actually build dams. Okay. I looked at them. I I got caught up in sewage treatment because, as I oh. said, I started in um, with Sydney Water, mm-hmm. and so I be I became a sewage treatment engineer. And I'd watch the when I was in Sydney Water. You know, the dams guys were sitting across the the, the hall from me, and I'd talk to them, and I wrote a program and all sorts of things. But um, I was a sewage treatment engineer, so. I guess I felt a little bit environmental there because when you pull the chain, it was my job to get rid of it for you. Yeah. Uh, so I then, in, in the Australian Water Association, I started to see a lot about water and, and I just thought a lot. I didn't really become an activist until 2007. Mm-hmm. which to me is not that long ago. I really thought that uh, all we had to do was talk about the problem. The solutions were there. We just get on and do it. 
I got to Toowoomba on my trip, found out that there were deniers everywhere. Jeez. And then I got back and I was talking to a guy at the Department of Primary Industries and he was feeding me information about where we're up to with what government knew about climate change. And then he said, I'm over it. I can't do it anymore. I said, why? He said, I get attacked so much on the internet. I just can't do that. And that just surprised me. And it was, it was a gradual realisation that there are these vehement bully deniers that are out there. And it, it, just, it just was slow, slow in coming. It wasn't a, uh, an epiphany. Mm. And we talked about this off record, but I'd love for you to share uh, deniers while we're on that subject. What do you think climate change denial is all about? What do you think it stems from? Well, there are always going to be deniers. Hmm. As we said, we can go and find people who believe that the earth is flat. <laughs> we can find people who believe that we didn't go to the moon. But that's just a, I don't know, a peer thing, I guess, but, and they feel comfortable with that. With climate change, if all your life you have believed in a certain economic rationalism, a certain belief that uh, what you've done is right, and then climate change comes along and says, no, <laughs> what you've believed in is wrong and it's killing the planet, you have to change. It's easy then to find fellow people who would say, no, we don't, everything we've done is right. So it's, it's a lot stronger cohort than we didn't land on the moon. Yeah, and gotcha. Because more people are involved in having to do work on their ego, pride, uh, perhaps even the job they're currently in or, you know, bigger, bigger things. So there's a lot more at stake for a lot more people, which is why the sense of denial and the conviction around denial is so big. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and if your income depends on it, it's 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 a lot harder. You know, if you're well, there's um, a saying, isn't there? You believe what your income depends on you believing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's why a lot of politicians continue on with their certain belief systems uh, in terms of what's right and wrong in politics, because of the way democracy, and I put that in inverted commas for a reason, has been set up is that business is allowed to invest in elections. And as soon as we get that happening, then you don't want to lose all your donors, do you? So, you know, you don't know what life might look like without them. You might actually have to win because you've got a great brain and some really strong ideals. So it's, it's a bit harder. I'm not sure, I'm not sure um, how you get the people with the brains. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. I, I think that our parliament, particularly at local government level, but all through all levels, I'm starting to realise, it's a reflection of society. Mm. I used to think okay. smart people were in there. But if the average IQ is 100, I reckon the average IQ of the politicians is 100. Yeah. So... Where do, you, where do you go if you haven't got the big thinkers, the people who question? Mm. And that explains to me why uh, each time I've met Bob Brown when I've been doing some activist stuff, he refers to me as being smart. 
Why is he saying that? I'm not particularly smart, Bob. Yeah, okay. Compared to some of the people that he had to deal with. Yeah, wow. That's, uh, that. I mean, I sometimes feel like that. I feel like it's, um, especially when you look at education deprioritization in terms of the public education push, public access to great tertiary education at a low cost, you know, that I feel like all of that's dwindling. And when we stop investing in education, we dumb down our whole population, which means you don't have to be quite so smart to convince people which way to go on things. And that's scary to me as someone who prides myself on, you know, educating myself at every possible turn, being a critical thinker. But sadly, I don't think our education system in the public sense here or in the United States is doing a good enough job to foster that. Look, I, I totally agree. I, I just despair mm. sometimes. And I've watched, and a lot of people won't like me for saying this, but I've watched engineering expertise decline, decline, decline. Really? Um, when when I did engineering, I was in the top few percent of the population when I graduated. I guess mm-hmm. so, um, I'd I'd been ducks at a primary school, so that's where I sat. Um, and I met all these people when I turned up at my engineering degree. So there are one hundred and thirty of us. And we were all sort of like that. And all of a sudden, I wasn't the smart one. You know, I was, I was about middle of the road with mm. all these other smart people. And when we finished engineering, out of the 130, there were four of us. There were another 20 or 30 who didn't finish on time, but the rest had gone. So we've taken oh. all these people who'd proven themselves intellectually and we weeded them out. And that hasn't been happening with engineering. You've still got lots of very, very smart engineers, lots of great engineers, but you've also got a lot of people that struggle for mm. comprehension of what I'd call some basic engineering concepts. That's interesting. So we've sort of moved to that participation award model where everybody gets to be a part of it and there's no weeding out anymore. Well, at the, the entry level um, for engineers went down and down. And one of the, what I think is a really sad thing is that they want to drop the, en- the entry level further for female um, engineers. Why? And, I think it's dreadful. I think it's dreadful. They want more engine. They want more female engineers. So every female engineer that I've spoken to thinks it's dreadful. I think it's dreadful. Somebody in the government thinks it's a good idea. We want to foster more young girls to consider, break, like you know, a path to engineering to get to the state they need to be in to be accepted into engineering. You don't lower the standard for equality. That makes no sense. You exactly. lift girls' education along the way to get, you know, that same great standard, but well, more girls I'd there. lift the entry level mm. and I'd say, come on, you can do it. You yeah, can exactly. get up yeah. get, get going. That's, that's what I It's yeah. quite terrifying that there's a race to the bottom, 
Jones vibe uh, in engineering. I would never have thought that that would have been touched by the race to the bottom kind of culture that seems to be happening in lots of... I look, I think it's in everything. Engineers yeah. are no different to anyone else. Uh, when we look at um, uh, climate uh, acceptance or denial statistics, engineers reflect the population. Right. Interesting. Um, now, you're the chair of the Sustainable Engineering Society. Um, what do you guys focus on as a society and uh, what's some of the work that you guys do? Um, well, sustainability covers a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United Nations has a lot of goals that um, they've set out. So we try to get that into engineering. We have embarked recently on a process to get every engineer to understand what sustainability is. Mm -hmm. I'm a civil engineer and when I did my civil engineering degree, I learnt about flooding of Lake Pedder. I learnt about... um, how important mangroves were. I learned about uh, sand mining and seal rocks. That was part of my civil engineering degree. I could write an EIS, an environmental impact statement, as part of my training. And I finished in um, 1976. And in the early 80s, they started up environmental engineering. And I'm not I'm part of the Environmental College now, but I, I'm not so sure that it was such a great idea to say, okay, environmental engineers have got it. We don't have to know that shit anymore. And that's ah, what happened. Yeah. If you're going to specialise in looking after the planet and its systems, then you go over there and we'll yeah. just focus on generic civil engineering. We're going to build a road and a bridge, yeah. man. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. I don't know whether I'm right, but that's just my theory. No, but I think you can draw some parallels across multiple industries. If you think of medicine, for example, and you think of modern medicine and the advent of the specialist. So instead of looking at the body as a whole, we all had to then choose the part of the body we were going to specialise in, the lungs or the brain or the heart. And I've been to a cardiologist before where I've had multiple system issues that were all related to one root cause, in my case, mould exposure in the long term. But he looked at my heart, did every possible test under the sun, told me I'm fine, there's nothing to worry about. And I said, what, what's up with all the, all the things that are happening to me, including all the things that are happening to my heart? And because of the inability to look at the whole body, uh, the, the system failed me. Um, because if you look at one part and it doesn't seem to be not working, then you, you know, you don't have to look at any of the other parts because you send someone else, you send someone off to someone else for that. And it's like civil engineering is being compartmentalized as well to the detriment of the bigger picture. Civil, mechanical, Mm. um, electrical, electronic, um, mechatronic, you know, it's, uh, it's getting narrower and narrower. Mm. Whereas you, you you need probably need to go wider in your training. Mm. 
always thinking I'm designing, but I know the big picture of what success looks like, not just the success of this small thing I'm working on. Correct. Yeah. Cool. That said, that said, I became an expert in a very narrow subject, which was, <laughs> which was building things to control water. They're called penstocks. And uh, I, I brought the engineering into Australia for that. I was the only engineer for a few years doing that. So if, if anybody wanted to know about penstocks, they asked me. So I used, to, I used to say to people, look, if you want to be the best in the world, just go down as tight, as tight, as tight. And if there are only two of you left, take half of that and you'll be the best. Mm. So, so we are that. taught culturally in terms of the metric of success around our jobs to specialise. Yep. Yeah. So yep. interesting. So it just goes to show how much our thinking needs to change as a society on the whole of what success looks like and how collaboration and cross-communication is going to be key moving forward. Well, I think you need both. Mm. I think you need both. I was. I think what I did to go down into that area where um, I knew more about my subject than anybody else, that should have been half what I did. The other half of my brain should have been exploring really widely. Mm. But I could. I could do this bit, make some money out of it, and and probably advance that area. And overall, I could see how it fitted together. That mm. that would be ideal i think yeah interesting stuff big conversation so how do we move from what we're talking about now to you deciding to jump into a kayak and kayak for thousands and thousands of miles how did that come about for you and what did you hope to achieve in doing these huge kayak runs in um what was your kayak called? Old Yeller? old yellow yeah that didn't come until later until just near the end i didn't have a name for him <laughs> but I used to paddle to work. So uh -huh. my house was away from the river. My business was away from the river. And um, I used to wheel the kayak on a trailer thing down to the water. I'd then put that on the kayak and tie it on and then go down to the model ferry and take it out, go a kilometre and a half, and then reverse it at night. And uh, I was just paddling home one night and I thought... Um, I think I should paddle Adelaide. I don't know why I thought that. I just thought, oh, that, that'd be a good adventure. And um, so we decided to, with Boilermakers who worked for me, we decided to try wheels that folded up. We tried a whole pile of different ones. We worked out three wheels was best. Well, and, if anyone um, was going to be able to do it, an engineer was going to be able to do it. So it was totally handy there. <laughs> You'd hope, particularly when the boilermaker can make the bits for you. <laughs> so uh, I decided to sell the business and do the trip. Uh, I had already at that stage been active in the climate science area. I put on a seminar for the Australian Water Association and um, I sort of got it. And then I read uh, Tim Flannery's The Weathermakers, mm. and that's that's when I got it. That's I've gone, holy dooly! Uh, I, I know what we do here. This is really bad. And my wife at the time thought that I was depressed, um, but I haven't changed 
any of my thoughts that I got from that immediate reading of his book, I haven't changed any of my thoughts. I've tried to do stuff about it, but I haven't changed my thoughts about where we might be headed. Mm. And where do you think that is? Uh, not a good place because we've got the deniers and the people that won't do anything. Um, we all know that um, we have a bulldozer at the gate syndrome, you know, we don't mm. do anything for the bulldozers there. So uh, we're not going to do anything until it's too late to get back to where we were. We're going to have to live in a very, very different world. Mm. And and unfortunately, I think that world uh, will have a lot of conflict in it. Yeah. One of the things that that I really wanted the climate scientists to do, because I've got a bit of street cred with um, with my trips. The climate scientists used to give me stuff for my talks when I did my first trip. Oh, handy! And that was great, and they were happy that I was out there pushing the barrow, but I'd come back to them and I'd say, look, what about the risk? You know, you've said this, you've said that. What are the chances of this or that? And I didn't really, I didn't really get it. Until 2014, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, produced information on what the risks are of reaching two degrees C. In 2018, Will Steff and a whole pile of world climate scientists. I love Will. I've had him on the show. Oh, good. Yeah. I like Will. Now, Will, I've had a chat to Will. So um, what his paper says is that he thinks the tipping point is two degrees. Mm -hmm. But there's still a statistical probability in that. As Will said, could be one and a half degrees. Probably not. Certainly less than three degrees. So I took that and I took the IPCC graphs and they said in 2014, if we stopped burning all fossil fuels then, we had a 90% chance of staying below two degrees. Mm -hmm. So forget all that and go back to what engineering is. If you hop on a, an aeroplane, which is an engineered thing, uh, there's a one in 16 million chance that you won't make it to the other end. Mm. So you're, you're pretty happy with that. Yeah. I managed to get hold of the uh, probability curves for the new bridge at Harwood over the Clarence River. We went to a presentation. It was a great job and they had a graph that um, showed the chance of catastrophic failure due to ship collision was somewhere in excess of one in a million. So, again, yeah, we're happy with that. Mm -hmm. In Brisbane, Wivenhoe Dam has a spillway that they calculated there was a one in a thousand chance that the dam could fail because the spillway wasn't adequate. So that's not acceptable for engineers. So no. they went to... How did that get passed in a design well, phase? Data, data changed. Right. The, the, the rainfall records changed. The, um, uh, they decided that the abutments may wash out, which would mean that the dam would fail. But you, 
your rainfall records are only we're only a young a country with certain amount of records, you know. So as you get more and more records, you understand more and more what your probabilities are. So let's just say it's now uh, more than one in ten thousand that the dam uh, is fine. So couple that with what we just said about what the IPCC said and the fact that we didn't stop burning fossil fuels in 2014, so our emissions have gone up. Couple that with will and say, okay, if we go over two degrees, there's a probability of catastrophic failure of society as we know it. So now the, the, the chance of catastrophic failure of society as we know it is one in five. Now, that's pretty sobering stuff. If you compare one in five to what's acceptable to an engineer, one in 10,000. Mm. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. There's still, even if we, if, if we stop burning fossil fuels now, there's an 80% chance that we'll be fine. Mm. We're not going to stop. And so that chance will come down from 80% to 79 to 78 to just keep on going. Yeah. So it'll get to the point where we're going to, be in the same place as tossing a coin for our own survival. And can I ask you, have you ever laid that out? Because you've just made it brutally clear to me and I accept how you've presented it, absolutely, because I've done a lot of research into climate change, and interviewed Will and a stack of other scientists, writing a book on an aspect of climate change as we speak. Um, so I get it, but I'm curious to know, can you take that to a denier, maybe a, a mate in your circle who's always rolled their eyes at your kayaking expeditions, giving talks, or, and have you ever laid that out and had someone still deny and then... What, Absolutely you know? not. Absolutely right. not. You can't get past first base. Mm. You go to, an ire, to a denier and say... 97% of scientists think the first comment you get back is that's not true. That's not true. Scientists don't know. They don't even know if CO2 is a problem. It's not true. And then you can't go any further. Mm. There is no way to advance that sort of discussion. Yeah. So I don't try. No. And it's such an important lesson, isn't it? Because so much of the human spirit wants to arc up and try but do we waste precious energy in that trying when we could be trying so much more somewhere else to actually advance the cause? Well, the people that, that I would like to communicate with are the people that don't know, uh, the people that are doubtful, um, and the people who are in despair because there are a lot of them as well and they, they need motivating. Mm. Well, when, we, when we're in despair and paralysis because of the magnitude of it, then we don't do anything either. So we're as bad as deniers in that sense, if that's how, you know. Well, no, terms, we're not as bad as deniers. No, 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 but, no, okay. But in terms of the output of action to drive us forward, technically we are because we're still not acting in the way we need to because we're so desperately sad, scared and depressed about it. Yeah, well... When um, there was the prospect of Hitler invading Britain, 
they didn't know whether they were going to be able to beat this guy. Mm. And so I reckon they were all desperately scared. Yeah. Worried. But they all got together and had a go. And nice. they did. Yeah, let's be those people, Steve. I think let's, let's be those people. We can be those people. Mm. So it's, it's those people that I'm interested in speaking with, not, not the absolute deniers. I don't want to give them the time of day. Yeah, good on you. Um, can I ask, back to your canoeing expeditions, um, how involving climate talks at various stops came about? Did it just kind of organically end up being that you would kind of stop and people would ask you what you're up to and no, was, was there planned. a plan? Okay. It was planned. It was planned a long time in advance. Uh, the first one I paddled from Brisbane up to Ipswich and then we had a, a whole seminar for a day and then we got to Toowoomba and we had another, another one, I think it was Earth Day. And then I'd speak to schools on the way down the river. And uh, I, I remember speaking at uh, Burke uh, Council and wow. I put up all of the stuff that I had from the climate scientists and I said, look, um, it's, it's the days, it's not the average days that are the problem. It's as things warm up, it's the end. And it could be just the bottom. For instance, um, mangoes. Uh, up at Bowen need two days of a temperature of such and such. I can't remember what it was. And if they don't get them because it's warmed up, you won't get propagation of your mangoes. Mm. So that's how serious it was. And I talked about things like that. And then um, the deputy mayor said, we don't have to listen to all that sort of bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be what you call your classic loudmouth heckler. We've all had one of those in a climate talk. Uh, so, what did so, you say? Well, I I let him go, and he said the problem is we've got no water, and uh, and there's 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 X number of megalitres in the Clarence. There's X number of megalitres. If they send it out here, we'll be right. All we've got to do is just turn those rivers and send them out here. And I said, mate, Clarence River. I'm from Grafton. And I said, you get that over my dead body. And all of a sudden, I got respect. Because <laughs> so, wow. I, I was ready to fight them for water. <laughs> <laughs> Figure all that out. <laughs> so did he actually come around to listening no. more seriously? No. No, no, no. No, no, no. Just ready to have a fight, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Take it out the back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so obviously you, you would have a heckler, uh, in quite a few audiences when it comes to climate change, one would almost expect it. Um, do you, how do you diffuse that person or quieten them down when, you know, because especially for those people on the fence, right? The doubters, the ones who aren't too sure, all it takes is one of those people saying, oh, you know, don't even know if it's CO2, yada, yada, um, like to maybe get those people who were prepared to listen to you, but then this guy sounds super convincing as well. How do you diffuse those situations like no, that? Do you not try to? I, I don't I don't try to and I haven't I haven't had it really serious. I've only had people just get up and walk out. Oh right. Okay. Um 
uh, when I spoke to uh, Ballina Council, which was my local council, yeah. um, uh, I was presenting what the latest was because I'd just done my Al Gore training. And oh, I've done the Al Gore training too. Which year <laughs> did you do? Uh, 2014 in Melbourne. Oh, amazing. I just did it this year in Brisbane. It was amazing. Uh, okay. Mm. Um, yeah, that's another story. Um, so there were two councillors that just sat outside and wouldn't come in. I'm not going in and listen to that bullshit, they said. So they just don't learn. They just don't, don't get past it. Mm. Yeah. But interestingly, and this is something that uh, you may or may not agree with, but I've been saying to people for a long time that Al Gore has failed. I failed. Tim, Tim Flannery, Flannery just came out and said he, he colossally failed as well. Yeah. Mm. And when I said the first time to a mate who's been an Al Gore presenter since the second one he did in Australia, he said, oh, I'm failed. I'm really good. They're really good presentations. And I said, mate, they haven't got anywhere. Mm. Al Gore's saying in 1983, he's saying now what he said in 1983. Yeah. So it hasn't worked. So I was listening to the drum tonight and they were discussing emotion and they've said, look at, what's, look at the problems we've got now. We've got um, Extinction Rebellion bringing all this emotion out. We've got to take the emotion out of it. And I'm going, well, the facts didn't work. No, exactly. <laughs> Let's have the emotion. I reckon we've got to give emotion a red-hot go. I... I I am in admiration for their work and the bravery of just getting out there and completely disrupting and uh, risking arrest. You know, that's, I, I always had, you know, I joined um, an activist environmental group on the first day of uni 20, uh, quite a few years ago. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and I remember going to the first few meetings and it, it, I, I became really uncomfortable because I didn't have that side that wanted to arc up and do brave out there stuff. But over the years, while I therefore then thought, similar to you perhaps, where I thought, oh, well, I'm not an environmental activist, I'm just not that type of person, it found me again and it found me in a different way, in a way that I could express effectively on my terms and with my own power in a different way to that. So I really think emotion absolutely 100% is key, but we don't all need to do it the same way to be effective. In fact, we need everybody doing it in a way they feel called by because that's always going to be the most effective way that person shows up if you feel genuinely called to do it in a certain way. And for me, that's grassroots education, empowering everyday people to do it for their kids, whether it's plastic pollution that hooks you in, whether it's a personal health crisis that makes you start looking at food systems and where your personal care and cleaning comes from and petroleum-based ingredients, and then you kind of start to go down the environmental road after that education. That's where I've felt comfortable and that's how I wake people up. And it works because we're all doing it with a deeper sense of the, the bigger picture. And I think in Extinction Rebellion works because they are showing up with that same conviction but in their own unique way. Uh, and it's powerful when people show up in the way they feel called to do. Oh, 
I think it's I think it's fantastic. I mean, I've been in this space now for nearly a couple of decades, and um, I've watched. You know, I had great hopes, and then I had no hopes. And um, the changes in the last two years have, have been incredible. You know, when I was on the Today Show on Channel Nine um, last week, mm. and when I set out on my trip to when I came through Sydney and I was going to go up through North America and over to Paris, all that sort of stuff, and I paddled into Sydney, uh, they weren't interested. They said, climate change is old news, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nobody's right. interested, they said. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yep. There you go. <laughs> You got to laugh, otherwise you'd cry. Well, it's just great though to see the way the turnaround in the last two years. I just wonder where we'll be in another two years. Mm, I agree. Do you feel that maybe you've regained a sense of hope in this last two years? Uh, No. Um, Mm. uh, I think this is what we need to be able to salvage just from the worst, but I think. Absolutely, we are going to lose society as we know it because we can't do what we what we do now. We can't continue to do that. We can have probably happier lives, but we can't consume, consume, consume. It's got to stop. Yeah, sure does. So, what's next for you? Well. Uh, the book gives me now the opportunity like this to be mm. able to talk to people. Um, it's a beautiful book, by the way. Tough is not enough. Such a good title. <laughs> very, very good title. And I encourage everybody to grab it and pop it in the show notes for everybody today to um, see where they can buy it. Thank you. You should be able to buy it just about anywhere or, or online. Mm. He's kind of but- famous. I'm working with Engineers Australia mm-hmm. uh, and obviously there's going to be pushback from a certain demographic, but what I want to talk to them about, I'm going to put to the, the heads of uh, all the societies, the chairs of the colleges, uh, the risk that I talk to you about mm. and see what sort of response we get. We, we have a movement called Engineers Declare, which um, is about declaring a climate emergency, and we're starting to get traction with that. So rather than go and glue my hand to the road, uh, which I think is admirable, um, my efforts are going to be in this area of pushing, pushing um, influential people. Mm. But again, that's about you showing up in a way that you see you can bring your most authentic self and power to the situation at hand. It's perfect. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm driven. I'm, mm. I'm driven to it. I started out um, uh, a year before my first trip. I uh, crashed my motorbike in the sand out in the desert and... Um, I didn't die. 
And when wow. I found yeah. how close I was to dying, I thought, well, sunshine, you better make your life count. And so I did that every day. And then five grandchildren turned up. And, and uh, I didn't realise how sooky or protective I would be towards them. Mm. And so my desire to make a difference has dwindled to these are my grandkids. And when I was paddling up the Mississippi, I used to see their faces. Mm. So that's what it's all about. But it's, you know, it's not only my grandkids, it's everybody. It's my kids now, you know. It's everybody. You can't not do your best, I think. You can't not do your best for your kids. That's right. It's that simple. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Such a pleasure to talk to you and hear about your career, your escapades in the face of deniers calling bullshit and all the rest. Um, And I know you've said a couple of times... You, you lacked hope, but in a lot of the other things you've said, I feel a very hopeful person. Uh, and I think if we all just keep doing what we know we do best, showing up for the cause uh, and, and not backing away, uh, then I, I, as you say, I'm excited to see where we are in another couple of years. Thank you, Alex. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action Uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week.